Chapter 9 of With Cortez in Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. With Cortez in Mexico by George Alfred Henty. Chapter 9 Life in a Palace. Now, the young king exclaimed joyously, as soon as the party he had invited had assembled, and the silk hangings at the entrance of the door had been closed. Now we can talk at our ease. In the first place, what can I call you? My name is Roger Hawkshaw, your majesty. The king repeated the name. It is two words, Roger said. With us people have two names, the one which is common to all the family, the other which is given particularly to each person. The name of my family is Hawkshaw. My own name is Roger. Your Majesty can call me by either one or by both. Long names were common in Mexico, and Roger Hawkshaw seemed by no means long to the king. Roger Hawkshaw shall be your name in public, he said. It has a strange, grand sound and will impress the people but I will call you Roger. This is my queen and first wife, Maclutha. This is my sister, Amenche. These are two of my oldest and ablest counselors. Both are great nobles and have led the armies of my father to victory. These four young men are, as you see, my friends. They are the sons of four of my chief nobles and have been brought up with me since we were children. Now tell us more about yourself and your people. The whole party took their seats upon the couches, half sitting, half reclining. Attendants brought in cocoa of many different flavors, confections, and tobacco. Roger took the cocoa, but refused the tobacco. We do not know this herb in our country, he said. That is a grave misfortune for you, the king remarked. It is known and used by all peoples that we know of here. It was used by the people we found here when we came from the far north, and all the tribes there used it also. First, tell me what induced you to make this long journey across the sea. Roger had been expecting this question, and as he had already determined that he would, in all matters, adhere to the truth, he did not hesitate in his reply. Your Majesty will understand that all the white peoples who dwell on the borders of the sea journey much in ships, which is the name we give to the floating castles. We do trade with many peoples. For example, there is, far to the south of us, a great land wholly inhabited by people who are quite black. A general exclamation of astonishment broke from the party. They must be frightful, the young queen exclaimed. They are very ugly, Roger said, with very wide mouths and very thick lips and flat noses, and instead of having long soft hair, they have only a short, curly sort of black wool on the top of their heads. Have you seen them yourself? asked Kakama, rather gravely. I have seen some of them, sire, Roger replied. I was in a ship that was attacked by others, manned by a people who live on the northern coast of this land, and who are themselves not black, but yellow, and they had with them several of these people, of whom I speak, 
who were frightful in their ugliness, but who, to do them justice, fought bravely, though we managed at last to beat them off. I pray, Your Majesty, not to doubt any facts that I may tell you, for in my country it is considered disgraceful to lie. And, however extraordinary some of the things I may say may appear to you, I can assure you that they will all be absolutely true. They may seem to you hard to believe, but you must remember that things which are strange to us always seem wonderful. My own countrymen, for example, would find it hard to believe that there could be a people who took delight in drawing in the smoke of a burning vegetable and puffing it out again. I will not doubt what you say in future, Kakama said. Now continue what you were telling us. The white people are divided into nations, as are your people on this side of the water. Some, however, are much more powerful than others while in times of peace all the ports of different countries are open to the ships of the others, there are two countries that claim the right over great seas, although as yet untraveled and unknown. But how can they claim such a right as that? One of the two chief counselors asked. Partly by the right that they have been the first to try to make discoveries in those seas. Secondly, because one of these countries is the strongest at the present time, and thirdly, because they have been confirmed in their claim by the Pope, who is the chief priest of all the religion that is held in common among all white people. To the Spaniards was assigned that vast space of water lying towards the setting sun. You do not belong to that nation? No, my country is called England. It is a great island divided into two kingdoms, of which ours is the larger. Are your people great fighters? Yes, we have fought many obstinate wars with the nation lying on the mainland opposite to us, and our men have beaten theirs when they have outnumbered us many-fold. But at present we are at peace. We found that, while we could beat them in battle, we could not continue to hold a country that lay separated from us by the sea. And you are friends with the Spaniards also? Yes, we have never warred with Spain, and our king has, as his wife, a princess of that country. Trading at Spanish ports, we learned that there was a rumor among the Spaniards that, far to the west, lay a great people possessing vast stores of gold and riches of all kinds, and so my father, who was the captain of one of these floating castles, determined to sail across the sea, and, in spite of the Spaniards and their rules, endeavor to perform the adventure of discovering, if possible, this great nation. What would have happened if the Spaniards had met you as you passed through their waters? Had they succeeded in taking our ship, they would have killed us without mercy. But we had a strong crew, and would have matched ourselves willingly enough against any Spanish ship, however big, that interfered with us. And what became of your ship? She struck, during a gale, on the coast of Tabasco, and was dashed to pieces. My father and all on board were drowned. But God protected me, and I was thrown ashore unhurt. It being doubtless his intention— that I should live to be the first white man to see your great country, 
and to bring to you the news of the white peoples beyond the sea. "'You know the story about our god, Quetzalcoatl,' the king said, after a long pause. "'We had news that you knew all about him. We believe that his descendants will return hither to teach us many things. I am aware of it, sire. But do you know also that we of Tezcuco have reason to view the arrival of the whites with fear? My father, who was full of learning and wisdom, predicted when on his deathbed that a white people would shortly arrive from the sea and would overthrow the Anahuac kingdoms. It is strange, indeed, that within three years of his death you should appear. It is strange, Roger agreed. Assuredly, your majesty, your father's prophecy did not allude to my people. We are a comparatively small nation, and are not even masters of the whole of our island. We have not one ship to fifty that the Spaniards possess, and have no desire for foreign conquests. We are strong if attacked, and even Spain would find it a hard matter did she endeavor to conquer us. But we should not dream of challenging the rights she exercises over the seas to the west of her. Moreover, our climate is a cold one, and we should not be able to support, with comfort, the heat of a country like this. It is not from our nation that danger can ever approach you. But from the Spaniards? the king asked gravely. I cannot think, sire, that so great and powerful a nation as yours has reason to dread conquest by the Spaniards. But they are a mighty people. They have extended their rule over many peoples on the other side of the water, and they have captured many islands which lie not so very far from your shores. How far away? one of the old councillors asked. A vessel with a favoring wind would sail to your coast, thence, in twelve or fourteen days, Roger replied. There was a general exclamation of surprise and uneasiness from Roger's hearers. Many questions were asked him as to the number of men the Spaniards could put in the field. His answer somewhat reassured them. Perhaps two thousand would be the utmost they could send from these islands, he said, though I know not the strength of their various garrisons. But from Spain they could, if they chose, send across the seas in their ships ten times as many. We could put over two hundred thousand in the field, the king said proudly. Roger was silent. You do not think, the king went on after a pause, that twenty thousand of these men are to be feared by a host like ours? With equal arms and armor, no, your majesty, but with the advantage of their weapons, the fact that they are clad in armor which your spears and arrows and knives would be powerless to pierce, and that many of them would be mounted soldiers whose rush and impetus in battle it is nigh impossible, even for white infantry who have no fear of the horses and are themselves clad in armor, to withstand, and that they have, in addition, these terrible cannon of which I spoke to you. I think that should twenty thousand of the Spaniards land here, they would be irresistible. However, I do not think that there is any chance of such an army being brought against you. Rich and powerful as Spain is, the expense of preparing such an expedition and the ships required to carry it 
would be so vast that I do not think she would undertake it. Moreover, she is always so occupied with wars at home that she could not spare such a force for a distant expedition, and I do not, therefore, think you have any ground for alarm in the present. I believe that in a very short time Spanish ships may arrive at your ports and will open trade with your people. I wonder that they have not long since found their way here. Trade would be beneficent to both. They have many commodities that would be most useful to you. You have others that they would prize greatly. What are our products they would most value? the king asked. First and most of all, gold, Roger said. It is with us the scarcest and most valuable of metals, and all things are valued by it. As with you, bags of cocoa, are your standard of value, so with them are pieces of gold. A wide estate is worth so much gold, a ship or a horse or a suit of armor, so many pieces of gold, and so through everything. All your delicate embroidery work would be valuable in their eyes as being strange and different to anything we possess, while on their side they could provide you with silks and satins and velvets and cloths and other fabrics new to you, to say nothing of arms and ironwork vastly superior to any you possess. One of the old councillors whispered something in the king's ear, and the latter said to the queen, Maclutha, I would talk these matters over with my councillors. I am sure that you and my sister are longing to hear from Roger Hawkshaw all about the ladies of his race and their dresses and fashions. Take him, therefore, into your room while we discuss this matter here. The two ladies and Roger thereupon went into another apartment, similar in style to that which they had left. The conversation here took a light turn, unrestrained by the presence of the king and his counsellors. They piled him with questions, which Roger answered to the best of his power. He was soon furnished with paper, pens, brushes, and paint, and he drew them several sketches, showing ladies in European fashions, which filled his companions with surprise. It seemed to them impossible that a woman could move with ease and comfort in so much clothing. Then he drew for them a noble in the court dress of the period, and also the figure of a knight in full armor. The last astonished them most of all. How could a man move and breathe, thus enclosed in metal? Roger admitted that, in a hot climate like that of Mexico, the heat would be terrible. But he pointed out that men so clad were carried on horses, and had no occasion for movement, save of their arms, which, as there were joints in the armor at the shoulder, could be moved in any way with freedom. There cannot be much bravery required to fight when protected in this way by metal, the queen said. Numbers are killed, nevertheless, Roger replied. The armor, strong as it is, will not resist the missiles fired from cannon, and the helmets, that is, the part that protects the head, can be beaten in by blows with heavy maces. Moreover, when two parties similarly armed charge, the shock is so terrible that horses and riders are alike thrown to the ground, and when thrown down, they may be trampled to death by the horses or killed by footmen before they can recover their feet. Still, 
There are many who think that some day armor will be given up altogether, for the guns are being improved constantly, and when the balls sent by those carried by footmen are able to pierce any armor, it will no longer be any protection whatever. And these ladies of yours, the princess Amenche asked, are they very pretty? Because these matters are more to our taste than these ugly arms. They differ much from each other, just as they do here, Roger said. Some are homely, and others are pretty. Are their eyes always blue, and their hair of a bright color like yours? Oh, no, there is a great difference. Some have hair almost as light as flax, some almost as dark as yours, but not quite so dark. Some have hair almost exactly the color of gold, some a red, like the fringe of your garments. Then there are many shades of brown, between red and black. The eyes vary in the same way. People with light hair and golden and red have either gray or blue eyes. Those with brown hair of different shades have brown eyes, sometimes light and sometimes dark brown. How strange it must be, the girl laughed, to see people with hair of so many colors. And which do you like best, Roger Hawkshaw? At the present moment, princess, I cannot imagine any color more beautiful than a deep, glossy black. The girl colored through her hazel skin. Ah, you know how to flatter in your country also. Roger was about to reply when a message was brought from the king, desiring them to return to the next room. We have been taking all these things that you have told us into grave consideration, the king said when they were seated, and have concluded that it will be for the best that this matter of these Spaniards should remain an absolute secret, and that no word shall be spoken to a single person, however dear, by any of those who have heard it. The country has long been in a disturbed state, and constant expeditions are necessary for ourselves and for Mexico to suppress risings and put down outbreaks of discontent. Were the news to be whispered about that there is a strange, terrible white people within but a short distance of our shores, the result would be disastrous. Men's minds would become unsettled, their ordinary employment would be neglected, all sorts of dismal forebodings would seize them, the very worship of the gods might be affected, and instead of being able, should the time of danger ever come, to meet our invaders boldly and fearlessly, they would find us disorganized and disheartened, and our power of resistance greatly diminished. You, Roger Hawkshaw, have told us everything with frankness. We feel that every word you have spoken is true, and that you have a real feeling of friendliness towards us, and that your sympathies are with us rather than with the people of this other white nation. But others would not see it so. Even as it is, there is sure to be a party against you. Were it known that a nation, possibly hostile, of your color, were but a short distance away, nothing could save you. You would be sacrificed at once to the gods. Therefore, as for the sake of the nation, we have decided that what you have told us shall remain a profound secret to ourselves. So, for your own sake, we pray you henceforth to say nothing to any of what you have told us. Let men think 
what they like as to how you have reached our shores. Preserve a sort of mystery as to yourself. There is no reason why you should not speak, but even then guardedly, of the wonders of the land inhabited by white men many months sail across the seas. But it were best that as little should be said as possible. Montezuma is sure to wish to see you, but before you visit him, we will again take counsel together. I will, to the best of my power, carry out your majesty's orders, Roger said. I fully recognize their wisdom. Indeed, neither at Tabasco nor upon the journey, either to the merchants or your envoys, have I said a word respecting the Spaniards. But I thought that it was but right that you should know the truth of the matter, especially when you told me of the prediction of your royal father. In future, when I am asked questions, I can always fall back upon silence and reply truly, I am forbidden to tell this. That will do excellently, the king said. There is but one point connected with you now that puzzles us, a point which, before you came, confirmed us in the belief that there was something supernatural in your character. How is it that you have come to understand and speak our tongue? Roger smiled. To anyone else, your majesty, I should have replied, I am forbidden to answer that question, but I wish not to have any mystery with you. During the time I was at Tabasco, I was waited upon by a Mexican slave girl who taught me her tongue. The king burst into a hearty laugh, in which even the grave counsellors joined at this simple solution at what had appeared to them so strange a mystery. Kuitkadi, the king said to one of the young nobles, I hand over Roger Hawkshaw to your charge. You see, you need not be afraid of him, and he will throw no spells over you. Show him all there is to see in the city, but go not far away, for we shall have frequent occasions to speak to him. He will have a seat in the council, and at our own table. See that all know that we most highly esteem and desire to honor him. Bowing deeply to the king, queen, and princess, Roger followed the young noble into whose charge he had been given. For a long time they continued their way down passages and corridors, until it seemed to Roger that it was a town rather than a building that he was traversing. At last his conductor pushed aside a hanging and entered an apartment. These are my rooms, he said. You are now master here. All the nobles of the council, and those whom the king wishes to have about his person, have suites of apartments in the palace. I hope some day to have the pleasure of entertaining you on my own estate, which lies a day's journey away to the northeast of the lake. Now you will doubtless be glad to retire to rest at once, for you have had a long and weary time." So saying, he led the way into a small chamber, leading out of the larger one. Here a luxurious couch was arranged, and it was not many minutes before Roger was asleep, for he was indeed completely worn out, and was too much fatigued even to think over the strange position in which he found himself. He woke early, for upon his journeys the caravan had always started at daybreak, so as to get as much as possible of the journey done before the heat of the day set in. For a moment he wondered vaguely where he was, 
and then, as recollection returned to him, he leaped from his couch, threw back the hangings before the window, and gazed out. Glass was unknown in Mexico, nor was it a requisite in the balmy climate of the valley. The prospect was a charming one. Before him lay a garden more beautiful than any he had ever beheld. It was filled with shrubs and flowers, and a delightful perfume filled the air. Fountains of bright water threw their jets high above the sweet-scented groves and shrubberies. Several large ponds glistened in the morning sun. On some of these were islands, accessible by light bridges, and on the islands were fanciful pavilions. Waterfowl floated on the surface of the ponds, or stalked fearlessly on the marble pavement that surrounded them. The songs of innumerable birds filled the air. Roger was gazing in delight at the scene when Cuitcatl's voice saluted him. "'You are up betimes. Are you ready for your bath, or will you take some chocolate first? "'Bath first, please,' Roger replied, and his guide led the way across the large room, and, drawing a hanging aside, showed Roger into a bathroom. The walls and floors were entirely covered with marble. In the center was a bath, some seven feet square, with a stream of water running into it from the mouth of a grotesque animal's head. Every apartment has its bathroom, Cuitcatl said. The water runs for an hour after sunrise only, but it can be turned on at any hour. It seems a waste, but we are far above the lower portion of the garden, and the water, therefore, runs into a tank, and thence works the fountains there. Would you like your attendant to rub you in the bath, or when you come out of it? For both methods are in use with us. Roger declined both alternatives, and it was not very long before he rejoined his companion in the central apartment. Chocolate, light cakes, and fruit were at once served. We had best visit the gardens first, before the sun gains too much power. There are charming arbors and pavilions in shady spots for taking one's ease at the middle of the day, but for walking about the early hours are the best. The gardens were of great extent, and Roger was surprised at the extreme fearlessness of the innumerable birds of all kinds that seemed to regard them as their natural home. Why should they not be fearless? Cuitcatl said, when he expressed his surprise, they have never been frightened, and regard all who come here as their friends, rather than as their enemies. They have abundance of the food which they love best. They make their nests among the plants, or in the trees, which they would use, were they wild. The ponds are full of fish, and the water birds can find a far richer supply here than elsewhere. When the ladies come, the birds flock around them, and settle on their heads and shoulders, and take crumbs of sweet cake from their hands. Many birds must, of course, be caged, and you will see that there are large aviaries scattered here and there in the garden. In these are the hawks and eagles, and many other birds which could not be tamed so far as to remain in the garden unconfined. After wandering for nearly two hours in the garden, they returned to the palace, and afterwards went down to the marketplace, which was crowded, as it was the fifth day of the week. Cuitcatl had taken with them six officials of the palace to clear the way and prevent the people from crowding in upon them. 
Roger was struck with the orderly demeanor of the people. They seemed merry and lively, but their mirth was of a quiet kind, and there was everywhere an air of decorum and gentleness, in strong contrast to that of a European crowd. Why, he said to himself, there is more noise at home when two or three boats come in laden with pilchards than is made by all these thousands and thousands of people. There was no pressing or pushing, and the order of the officials, make way for the king's guest, the great Roger Hawkshaw, was at once obeyed, and the people drew aside, gazing at him curiously but respectfully, and saluting as if to one of their own great nobles. The market was an extensive square, surrounded by deep porticos, and each description of merchandise had its allotted quarter. In one was seen cotton piled up in bales, or manufactured into dresses and articles of domestic use, such as tapestry, curtains, and coverings. The goldsmiths had a quarter assigned to them. There Roger admired bracelets, necklaces, and earrings, delicately chased and carved, together with many curious toys made in imitation of birds and fishes, with scales and feathers alternately of gold and silver, and with movable heads and bodies. In another quarter were the stores of the potters, with dishes and plates, cups and basins, of every degree of fineness, for the use of poor and rich, vases of wood elaborately carved, varnished or gilt. Near these Roger examined some hatchets made of copper, alloyed with tin, and, as he felt the hardness of the metal, thought to himself that the natives, if informed as to the size and proportions of cannon, would have no difficulty in founding those weapons. Then there were certain shops devoted to the sale of articles needed by soldiers. The helmets, fashioned into the shape of the head of some wild animal, with grinning teeth and bristling crest, the quilted doublets of cotton, the rich surcoats of feather, mail and weapons of all sorts, copper-headed lances and arrows, and the broad Mexican sword with its sharp blade of itzli, a hard polished stone which served many of the purposes of steel to the Aztecs. Of this material were the razors made, with which barbers were engaged in operating in their booths. Many shops were well provided with drugs, roots, and different medicinal preparations, for Mexico abounded in medicinal plants, and the study of their uses was considered one of the most useful of the sciences, and in this respect the Mexicans were considerably in advance of the people of Europe. There were shops for the sale of blank books or rolls for the hieroglyphic picture-writing. Under some of the porticos were hides, raw and dressed, and various articles for domestic or personal use made of leather. Animals, both wild and tame, were offered for sale, and near them Roger saw a gang of slaves with collars round their necks, and these were also, Cuitcatl told him, for sale. The portion of the market devoted to the sale of provisions was a large one. Here were meats of all kinds, domestic poultry, game from the neighboring mountains, and fish from the streams, together with an immense variety of fruit, green vegetables, and maize. Here were ready-cooked foods for immediate use, sold hot to passers-by, and eaten as they stood, 
with stalls of pastry of many kinds, bread, cakes, and confectionery, chocolate flavored with vanilla and other spices, and pulque, prepared with many varying flavors, tempted the passers-by. All these commodities, and every stall and portico, were set out and well-nigh covered with flowers. After leaving the market, Roger proceeded with his companion to the edge of the lake. It was dotted with countless canoes, traversing it in all directions, filled with people passing to and fro between the great capitals or neighboring cities, bent either upon pleasure or trade. After feasting his eyes for a considerable time upon the lovely and animated scene, Roger returned with his companion to the palace. In the afternoon there was a great gathering of nobles at the palace, to enable a far wider circle than those assembled the evening before to see and hear the king's white guest. One of the old counsellors, who had been present at the previous meeting, acted as questioner, and this enabled Roger to escape certain queries to which he would have had difficulty in replying and while the assembly heard much of the various wonders of the white people they learned nothing of the manner in which the stranger had reached their shores or the object of his coming and at the end the general impression that remained upon them was that he was a mysterious and supernatural being who had come to teach the people new arts and inventions when the meeting was over, Roger retired again to the private apartments, and entertained the ladies there with many details of European life and manners, and by sketching for them houses and ships and other objects they demanded. Two hours later, Kakama came in. He was evidently vexed and anxious. "'I am sorry to say, Roger Hawkshaw,' he said, "'that tomorrow you must accompany me across the lake to Mexico.' I have had four dispatches today from my uncle Montezuma. He blames me for having permitted you to enter the city before consulting the priests at his capital. You know they are all powerful there. Montezuma, with all his pride and haughtiness, is but their humble servant. He says that sacrifices have been offered up and that the auguries are unfavorable and that the priests proclaim your presence to be a danger to Mexico. I have no doubt that, when they see you, this opinion will be changed, and I shall do my best to prepare the way for you. I have already sent a private messenger to the high priest, speaking in the highest terms of you, and strengthening my recommendation by some valuable presents, to which priests are not more than other men inaccessible." Roger saw, by the look of dismay upon the faces of the queen and the princess, that they considered the news very grave. "'Must he go?' the queen asked, in a low voice. "'How can it be helped?' Kakama replied. "'Montezuma is supreme, and he and the priests together are all-powerful. Roger is not like other men. Were he so, I would tell him when night comes to fly, and Kuikotl would risk the consequences, I am sure, and act as his guide. But being as he is, where could he go, or where could he hide? Were it known in the morning that he was missing, a hundred messengers from Mexico would carry the news to every town and village in the country. Even if we color his skin and his hair, his height would attract attention. For he is taller by half a head 
and broader by far than any Mexican. But even did he, by traveling by night and hiding by day, get at last beyond the boundaries of our kingdoms, what would then be his fate? To die of hunger or thirst, or to be slain by wild tribes? What say you, Roger Hawkshaw? Will you risk these unknown dangers, or will you go to Montezuma tomorrow? Were I sure that the priests would decide against me, and that I should be sacrificed to their great idol, I would risk death in any other form rather than that, Roger replied. But it may be that when they see I have no evil intentions, and neither thought nor power of injuring Mexico, they may lay aside their animosity against me. They do not believe that you will injure Mexico, Amanche said passionately. They only want you for a sacrifice. They think that a being so strange and rare as a white man would be, of all, the most acceptable victim to their god. My brother do not let him go, and the girl burst into tears. My little sister, Kakama said tenderly, you know that I am powerless in the matter. In my grandfather's time he would have answered a demand that a guest of his should be given up by a message of defiance. But times have changed since then, and the greater part of my kingdom no longer remains to me. My brother, who disputed my right to the throne, reigns over a large portion of it. Montezuma has seized fertile provinces. I am little more than the lord of a city, and could offer no resistance for a single day to the power of the emperor. But you must remember that, as yet, we do not know that the priests will decide against him. I myself shall go with him, and I have already, as I have told you, taken some steps to incline the priests in his favor. When I arrive there tomorrow, I will exert myself personally. I have many friends among the highest at Montezuma's court, and will also pray these to use their influence. Should I fail, all will not be lost. It is likely that, if they decide upon sacrificing you, Roger, they will make you the victim to the god Tezcatlipoca, the soul of the world, for him is always chosen the captive most distinguished for his appearance. For a year he is treated as the representative of the god. He is nobly cared for. He is attended by a train of royal pages, is worshipped by the people as he passes through the street, and is feasted at the tables of the nobles. Were you selected for this, as we consider it great honor, there would be at least a year before you, and you might then, in some manner, make your escape beyond our boundaries. At any rate, some time is sure to elapse before your fate will be determined upon, and I can promise that I will do all in my power to aid you to escape, should you determine upon flight. I thank you most heartily, Roger said. I have no fear of death in battle, but to me it would be very horrible to be put to death as a victim on a festival, and I would rather escape and drown myself in the lake than that such should be my fate. Still, if it must be so, it must, and I trust that I may behave as befits an Englishman in such an extremity. Amentia here stepped forward to her brother and spoke earnestly in his ear. My sister reminds me, he said, that we have sometimes another form of sacrifice, and that if I can do not else, 
I might be able to persuade the priests to pronounce in favor of that. It is only adopted in the case of a captive of distinction, who, instead of being sacrificed, is sometimes matched against a number of Mexicans. The combat takes place on a great circular stone, in the sight of the whole city. The captive is provided with arms, and meets his opponents one by one. If he defeat them all, which has more than once happened in our history, he is allowed to go free. That would suit me best by far, Roger said eagerly. I have no doubt but that I should be killed. Still, I should die in fair fighting against numbers, and it would be no worse than if I had fallen fighting the Moorish pirates on the deck of our ship. I should think that it could be managed, Kakama said. I should tell them that, at present, none could say whether you were a superhuman being or no, and that it might bring some misfortune upon the nation were a messenger of the gods put to death. This trial would prove that. If the gods protected you, you would triumph. If they were not on your side, you would be defeated. I should do my best, Roger said quietly. I have been well taught the use of arms, and in our long voyage here we practice daily. In point of skill I could hold my own with any on board, though there were many to whom I was but a child in point of strength. In that matter, however, I have doubtless gained much since then. I shall be thankful indeed, Prince, if you can persuade them to fix on this mode of execution for me, and I thank you very gratefully, Princess, for suggesting it. They talked for some time longer, and then Roger retired to his apartment. The next morning, soon after sunrise, he embarked with Kakama in a canoe, paddled by six rowers. My wife and sister bade me say farewell to you, Kakama said. They are sorely grieved at your going, and hope that you may return with me this afternoon. But if not, they bade me say that they will do all that is in their power. And women can exert influence, as well as men, on your behalf. It was a long row across the lake to Mexico. Large as the population of Tezcuco, which was estimated by the Spaniards to contain a hundred and twenty thousand inhabitants, that of Mexico was fully three times as great, as Montezuma had not yet determined upon the course which was to be pursued towards this mysterious stranger, the people had not been informed of his coming. A strong guard of soldiers, with several officers of the palace, met the party upon its landing, surrounded them, and marched quickly through the streets to the palace. The buildings resembled those of Tezcuco, and were massive and solid in character, but were not, Roger thought, grander or more splendid than those in the rival capital. The town was intersected by canals, and the bridges across these could be raised, adding largely to the defensive power of the place. Upon reaching the palace, the soldiers drew back, and the palace guard took charge of the party and led them into a large apartment, where they waited until the emperor was ready to receive them. Presently, two court officials entered, and, placing a mantle of coarse cotton over Roger, signed to him to take off his sandals. Kakama had already informed him that even the highest nobles of the land, with the exception of those of royal blood, 
were obliged to enter montezuma's presence in this attire as emblematic of their humility he also charged roger that it was the etiquette that all should keep their eyes fixed on the ground until addressed by montezuma accompanied by cacama roger followed the officials passing through several corridors they entered a vast hall roger was aware that at the farther end the emperor was seated surrounded by a numerous body of nobles but the instant he entered the room he followed the instructions of cacama and saluted to the ground and then advanced with downcast eyes until the officials by his side ordered him to pause montezuma was a victim of superstition and had been seriously discomposed at the news of the arrival of this mysterious visitor the more so that the priests themselves were unable to decide whether this visit was a good or evil augury as he looked at the tall figure before him with its strange colored skin and hair and the air of independence and fearlessness that was visible in the pose notwithstanding the downcast eyes he could not but be favorably impressed despite his fears you are welcome to our court he said if you come in peace and good will i come in peace and good will to your majesty and your empire roger said we have heard that you come from far beyond the seas where dwell a people having strange ways who live in floating castles and who fight with weapons making thunder roger bowed your majesty has been correctly informed do the people there worship the same gods that we do they do not your majesty the people there worship the one great god the god of the skies the air and the earth and that god sent you hither montezuma asked assuredly sire he directs all things each country has its gods the gods of mexico have given us victory over all the peoples from sea to sea roger bowed he did not feel called upon to contradict the emperor how is it that you came alone to this land i wish to see it roger said reports of its greatness and power having reached across the seas had i come with others it might have been thought that i came as an enemy but coming alone and without arms it could not be suspected that my intentions were other than friendly montezuma appeared impressed with this answer the audience lasted for upwards of half an hour montezuma asking many questions about the ships the arms the mode of government and other matters among the white people he then bowed his head the official signified that the audience was over and that roger was to retire as he had been instructed by cacama he withdrew keeping his face to the emperor he was conducted to a different apartment here a table was laid and he was served by attendants of the court who however made no reply to any questions he asked them and had evidently received orders to hold no verbal communication with him end of chapter nine